I guess it's time to record today another episode with me and Jamie. Listen to us review. Please tell you know we're not live. Talk about movies. We're not live. Talk about our lives. Oh God. And disability with mouths wide open and legs that don't move. Welcome to the show. It's Cripple Threat. Hey, yo. We're definitely live. Oh, God. <laughs> we can't open with Creed. Oh. It's such a fun thing to sing. That's more, that's worse than Nickelback. No way. At least Creed has like, yeah. Wait, okay, let's get into it. So this morning I was taking a shit, right? Okay. And my butthole is getting weaker. So I have to like psych myself into the poop. So I have to like enter almost like an altered state of consciousness. Tony, how many times do I have to tell you to drink coffee? It's not about that. Trust me, it is about that. Does coffee make your butthole stronger? It's so much stronger. No, it doesn't. It does. Stronger than Jeff McCool. (laughs) Man, I actually have legitimate butt envy for strong people who can just like force one out. I basically have to just like open it up and like see what falls out. Oh, you're... (laughs) (laughs) So I have to like psych myself into it. And sometimes... That's how I do it, is I'll just think of a song that's easy to parody, like this song, and then just start making up lyrics about how I'm trying to poop. And that helps you relax enough to take a dump? That's my process, because I just think about the lyrics instead of the pooping. But here's the worst thing I do, the most embarrassing thing I do, is on the wall in front of me, I'll visualize the first like eight moves of chess and try different moves. Like uh, Anya Taylor-Joy in The Queen's Gambit? Yeah, except I'm shitting. <laughs> Tony's <laughs> gab shit? <laughs> That's so weak. No, 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 wait, wait let me try again. <laughs> okay. Tony's gab bit of poo? <laughs> <laughs> I just love the word poo. It's great. It's such a fun word. It's the best word ever. Yeah, it's way better than poop. Do you remember the other day after The Sound of Metal, we were being ponderous and I was asking you if you thought that a person who is born with deafness and like then got a cochlear implant or whatever, some assistive device to help them hear again, and they heard a fart for the same time, like uh, for the first time as an adult, like, do you think the adult who heard the fart would find it funny or is that something that we only find funny as children no it's for sure the concept itself of what if if you think about what a fart even is conceptually yeah it's a trumpety noise that comes out of your butthole and on the way past it passes a bunch of poo so it smells like poo (laughs) (laughs) The whole concept is hilarious. Like our human body has evolved to the point where we can like overcome. You can like get crazy injuries and the body can fight back. And we're still farting all the time. You know what I mean? Like it seems like our colon is still lagging behind. 
I think it's because I I have a love hate relationship with pooping because it's it's a frustrating endeavor for me because it's like a transfer and then I, I have to sit there and and go into my altered state of consciousness, play some chess on the wall, and then I poop and then I have to get off. And so like it's just such an annoying part of my day. Are wait, are you while you're playing this like hypothetical game of chess, like are you more likely to poo if you're actually succeeding in the game? That's a great question. If you get put in checkmate, are you then like constipated? <laughs> well, I'm still winning or losing against myself. <laughs> I don't, I'm not like, oh man, I'm really good at this game today. I think it's actually, I'm most successful when I'm playing moves that they already play because it's just like autopilot. I'm just kind of zoning out. That's kind of what it is. Like, it's not so much that I want to focus on something else. It's that that is uh, an easy way for me to zone out. Like, you know how often I just randomly break out into a parody version of whatever song is in my head. That's true. Very often on the actual podcast. <laughs> yeah, like that was, that was, I mean, I'm pretty impressed. Because <laughs> <laughs> right before you record, I was like, I'm going to do Creed. And then I just started. Right. But yeah, I think it's because it's just like my body, my mind just zones out. So then my body, all of my brain activity can go to pooping. Like my muscles relax and I don't really know what the mechanics of pooping are. I feel like it's like one of those like Jedi doors where one door has to open and then another door unseals. And like it's a whole process. And I wish that there was an easy way for me to just hit a button and like the airlock door comes open and it just comes out and then I'm off. It all just shoots out. This should have been a question for Justine, right? We can ask her how good she is at pooping. No, not at <laughs> the mechanics of your bowels because she's a nurse. Oh, because she? she's a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, Tony. <laughs> I thought you were just like, Justine, what do you think about when you're pooping? <laughs> That could be another segment on the show. Yeah. And today, Ian, what do you think about when you're pooping? <laughs> I just start taking notes. Like I'll have my attendant there being like, all right, so can you write this down so I don't forget? I just thought about this movement, Jess. <clears throat> I think you have some, you're on to something with this idea of like mental math and like relaxing enough to be able to take a dump. Yeah. Because I've noticed like in the morning, that if I do have to take a dump uh, and I start coding like uh, around 9 a.m., like within five minutes of reading my first line of code, I will have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually kind of jealous of the people that can just like grab their phone or a book and go on the toilet and just chill for a bit. Cause I, I have to get there like a Buddhist. Like I, I have no distraction. So it's just, I have all these little mental tricks I play. I, but that's the, that's the strange thing, though, because in all of the facets of your personality, you're not neurotic. So, like, I, are you anxious that you're not going to be able to have a bowel movement? Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Because I know that, like, it's only a matter of time before that's not going to be even oh. possible. Oh, so God. Like, it's, like, it's like a if I can take a dump in the morning, 
then I'm like, okay, we're still good. Yeah. And if I can't, then I have to go do these mental gymnastics of like, all right, well, I'll probably be able to go tomorrow. It'll be fine. Well, can't you just have a day where you're not regular? It happens to a lot of people in their 30s. No, because then that tells me that it just reminds me that one day someone's going to be scooping it out. Oh, my God. Exactly. That's terrible. Something as simple as your fucking butthole makes you confront your mortality on a daily basis. (laughs) It's literally every single morning. It's like the first thing I wake up to is like someone comes in, they flick on the light transfer me to the toilet and i think about when i'm going to stop being able to poop oh my so when on the days where you do have like a really good one you're just like ecstatic yeah sometimes i brag i'll be like yeah it's pretty good today yeah but i don't sometimes like you want to flush first because <laughs> you're not going to want to see the disaster i just left <laughs> check that out <laughs> yeah and then other days i'm just like asking them to wipe a ghost just so i feel like there's progress Oh, my God. <laughs> you have big poo envy. <laughs> I have huge poo envy. <laughs> like, I actually think about, like, when someone's like, hey, I'm just going to go take a dump. I'm like, you don't know how good you got it. Do you think we're going to lose listeners from this discussion? Only if they're bad at pooping and they're annoyed. Only if they lack empathy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Did you set yourself up for that? <laughs> How many minutes ago did you have that lined up? Four. <laughs> yeah, if you're like MPC, then you're for sure going to not want to listen to this. Do you think about that, though? As a fellow disabled person who doesn't struggle with colon evacuation, do you ever think about how lucky you are? Like, your only struggle is, can I make it to a toilet? Yeah, I mean, I have, like, I I have other things. Like, I, I wonder about the long-term... Uh, durability of my joints for example like on my left leg yeah like because my ankle my ankle on my left and my my knee they cause me a lot of discomfort ever since i turned 30 i can't really attribute it to any one kind of transfer or motion or exercise so i think it's just long-term wear and tear and that sort of like gives me anxiety because i wonder how long I'll be able to go before I need some form of a number of hours per day from an external attendant, for example. Yeah. You know, like, cause there will become a point where I, I have no interest in asking my mom or dad for assistance getting out of the shower, for example, but that's that's coming definitely at some point it's coming. Do you think about that regularly? Uh, Lately I do. Yeah. Since COVID like everything's a lot, tighter physically for me like my hamstrings are rigid like my knees are constantly at 90 degrees it feels and that one particular transfer is particular particularly precarious because my bathroom is not really designed for the shower chair that i use so after i shower i frequently flood the bathroom and it's a problem because when i get out onto the floor everything is soaking wet and making it from the shower chair to the toilet to sit down is quite often like a feat of like Indiana Jones proportions. But when you do it, does it feel like that? Do you feel super accomplished that you were able to make that transfer? I don't know. It was a lot easier to do that transfer five years ago than it is now. Yeah, but doesn't that kind of make it even more... Like, that's what I mean with the pooping thing. It was easier for me to poop before, so I didn't even think about it. And now that I'm like 
oh, this is getting a little harder. I have to like, I'm more aware of it. Every time I poop, I'm like, all right, we're, we're still good. Yeah. We got another couple of days, a couple of days in us. Yeah. Like I have like a sense of accomplishment. Yeah. But- like I feel like not many people can say that they wake up in the morning, take a dump and already feel like their day's going well. <laughs> Major accomplishment is slap it on your Jira board. <laughs> in progress, done. Yeah. <laughs> For those not in the know, Jira is a, uh, a project management system frequently used by people in the tech sector. I should be tracking my poops. When I was a kid, uh, my potty training happened pretty late because my biological mom was like, well, what's the point? He's not going to make it to using a toilet so there's no point in training him on how to use it oh my god <laughs> can we unpack that for five seconds that was pretty straightforward she's like i mean i could just leave him in front of that tv what's the point he doesn't have to poop right now that is so terribly dark <laughs> so anyway <laughs> uh, it got worse because i would just get enemas regularly which is like basically you squirt this stuff up your butthole and it it, everything in your body is like, I need to come out right now. And you're actually supposed to hold it in almost as long as you can. And then everything comes out. It's absolutely the worst. And I used to have to do that every like couple of days, every time I needed to go to the bathroom. Just a minute now. Is a quick and dirty solution to not putting you on the toilet? I don't understand yeah. this, this, this ridiculous form of abuse. Yeah, well, because... My mom, I guess at the time, was like, well, it's easier to just do this because that's what you do to sick kids. You give them these things instead of, like, she didn't have the idea in her head that maybe even though I was disabled, maybe she could still train me to go to the bathroom. So she was like, oh, well, he's disabled. I guess we have to give him this thing. And then when I moved into foster care, my foster parents were like, or we could just try to get him to go in the toilet. And so that's what they did, but it was a big process for them. Well, I don't know if it was a big process. Like, I think I took to it pretty quickly because I was like, I'm five or like four years old, almost five years old and still taking enemas all the time. So like when when my parents, my foster parents. You took enemas for five years? Yeah. Jesus Christ, Tony. Probably a bit more because there was like a, a period where you have to adapt to the new thing. So your mother slapping the phlegm out of your chest was actually an upgrade from your... <laughs> yeah, like all those things that they did that always sound so barbaric, that's why I'm always trying to defend them because they're <laughs> actually, they're the same people that saved my life. Because it, like, relatively speaking, it was a kindness. Well, it was a kindness because they were doing it to save me because I was... When I went into foster care, I was legitimately dying. And so... Of what? Animals. <laughs> no, like, my, my doctors were like, this disability, basically, by the age of five, that's it. That's where it stops. And so my mom... So, was, hold on. They thought you were dying or you were dying? Well, the doctors told my biological mom I was dying. So she treated me like I was dying. So she's like, what's the point? Here's an enema. Yeah, exactly. Fuck off. And then so that kind of made me sicker. Because like it, it I do believe that, you know, if you ultimately give up, then your body's like, okay, well then I'll give up too. 
And so I think even as a kid, it's it's hard to talk about this without probably just depressing everyone. But no, like I had to basically realize that you, I, I was still at least able to live for one day ahead, and then it was a week ahead, and then a month ahead, and then years ahead. So when my foster parents took me in, I mean, they probably didn't want to do animals either, but they took me in as a palliative kid. Like, they were actually trying to retire. And then the the Tilden did was like, all right, yeah, but we just got this one kid. He's going to die in a couple of months. You just take him, and then you'll be fine. Then you can retire, and, you know, it'll be fine. And then they took me in, and they were just too good at their job of being foster kids that I lived. And so they kept being foster kids or parents. I don't understand how we're on our 21st episode of a podcast that averages 90 minutes per episode. And we haven't discussed the fact that when you're a young child, you were fucking palliative. <laughs> That's insane. It's, it's, it's a weird thing to bring up because it's hard to bring it up without. I think, I think it's because hopefully now, if people have listened for a bunch of episodes, you know, and we've talked a bunch, now you know that I'm not like sad and it hasn't really affected me negatively. Yeah. If we... I brought that out in episode one, people <laughs> are like, oh, this is going to be a depressing show and probably not into it. Jeez, is this thing produced by Warner Herzog? What is <laughs> it? <laughs> and then you have to take the anima, put it in the child's butthole and squirt. <laughs> and squirt? <laughs> That's what an anima is. You squirt it. Oh, it's like a butthole douche. Good Lord, Tony. It's the worst. We have to conclude this topic. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) I'll just say one funny story. I was so traumatized. How could this be funny? (laughs) Listen. How? Because I had enemas so regularly and they were traumatic to me. One time I went to the hardware store with my foster dad and I saw a caulking gun. Like that you use when you're like tiling a bathroom floor or whatever, or walls, right? Okay. So it's like a big, big like syringe with a big tip on the end. I, I don't know what tools are. I'm home improvement illiterate. I have no idea. Yeah, it's put. essentially like a big syringe, like a really big syringe. And it looks like a mechanism for delivering enemas. And you had a panic attack in the middle of the store and your father had to hold you. And like console you? I mean, it wasn't like I didn't freak out. I just saw it, pointed at it, and goes, is that an enema? And started getting worked up. Because I thought we were going to the hardware store. I thought he was like, come for a nice trip with me. And then we were going to buy my own enemas. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So I was like, kind of like... And then he just laughed. I was like, no, no, it's not. I, you just like don't appear to me ever to be someone who endured severe childhood trauma. <laughs> and yet you are. I'm very good at compartmentalizing. <laughs> You've been playing mental chess for 30 years. Yeah, but I'm only up to the first eight moves still. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, next topic. Let me take a sip of coffee here. I, I, I need a coffee break. One moment. See, it's hard not to bring that back to the butthole thing because you were talking about how coffee is so good for your butthole. I thought you were taking a break from coffee. I was, but it's pretty uh, instrumental in my energy level during the podcast. So I frequently have one on hand. 
just to make sure I don't drop the ball, you know? Is this the first coffee you've had since you decided not to? Uh, no, I've been having one coffee a day for the past two weeks. Okay. But so you've cut back quite a bit. Yeah, that's that's what it, it's from from three cups to one cup and then eventually to no cups. Do you want to talk about why you cut coffee out? Because I have generalized anxiety and coffee on a good day, it enhances my good moods. And on a bad day, it enhances my bad moods. Mm. Do you know it's going to be a good day or a bad day before you drink the coffee? Uh, I generally have a good idea for my anxiety level at the start of the day. Yeah. Like it's not, that's the kind of thing that makes me nervous about it is that typically what triggers my anxiety is not external elements. It's whatever, whatever I'm thinking about that day, whatever my headspace is, it's, it's definitely like a mental weather system. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist, but I assume that that's probably a better thing to have than one that is defined by external elements because at least you can probably with work start to control it a bit yeah i mean exercise helps a lot conversations with good friends help a lot music diet helps a lot yeah you know avoiding substances which i don't have a problem with in the last couple years but in my 20s i probably did so yeah there's a number of things you can do. I've been in, in kind of a funk lately, I've noticed. And it's more of like a, a malaise, like a COVID malaise. I think that everyone's kind of going through. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the other day, I put on pants, like real pants for the first time in a month. And it, it was, I had this weird feeling of, of uh, composure and confidence. Like I immediately logged into a long dormant dating app and started <laughs> swiping. <laughs> Just like change your status to wearing pants. <laughs> With like the cool guy emoji. <laughs> yeah. That would actually probably track pretty well. <laughs> Thanks for the tip, Tony. Yeah, you should do that. <laughs> That's so funny. But yeah, I knew I, I like I know I've been in a particular funk lately because I started watching later period seasons of The Office. And I like, and like binge watching. It's like a drug. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a drug. And uh, I don't like late, late period seasons of The Office, but I like the show's framework and the characters and like everything that The Office kind of ushered in for the whole comedy scene in the last 15 years. I'm talking about the US one yeah, yeah. Steve Carell. So yeah, like I've been watching that show religiously and just out of habit, it's like, Every episode is like a handful of Doritos, like covered in whipped cream. This is terrible for me. Yeah, that sounds disgusting. (laughs) It's a metaphor, but... What a terrible thing to dip your Doritos in. I used to... I had a doctor once tell me as a kid, make sure you never go a day without wearing shoes. And I never really knew what that meant. And honestly, I think it was just... Because otherwise your feet will get messed up. <laughs> like it was orthopedic advice? Yeah, it was just pretty straightforward. <laughs> but I've gone my whole life thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean if I don't wear shoes, I'll get into a funk where I think that I don't deserve shoes or I don't have any use for shoes? And like, I've thought about it a lot. 
shout out to that doctor who I think because it does help me. I do kind of like what you're doing. I don't really ever go a day without putting on clothes that I would be happy to go out in. Yeah, you always look、uh, very presentable. I'm always, yeah, I'm always trying to like look as if I could go out. Partially because if someone is like, "Hey, do you want to go out?" I don't want to have to like <laughs> first. Oh yeah, let me go change or whatever. Yeah, but that would be the perfect. If it was like the third date, it would be the perfect moment to friend tend a woman into removing and putting new clothes on you. Like yeah, sure, but you have to come put on my pants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know if that would work, but yeah. So I've I've always put on pants and shoes, and it does help because I don't know. Like I don't really wear sweatpants. I find them immensely comfortable, but I, I feel like if I wear them, then I just I feel like my day isn't going to go anywhere. So I've already set myself up for them. I completely understand that. Yeah, and there's an an extra sort of stigmatism placed upon disabled people to present themselves、uh, as formally as possible in order to counter the stereotype that we all wheel around in、uh, sweatpants and. Yeah, I'm really afraid that one day I'm gonna look like a nurse got me up with three minutes to go. Right. Yeah, because she had 35 other patients to look after in the same ward. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, your pants are backwards. Your shirt's inside out. Yeah, your hair is not done. You're wearing a beanie in the summer to cover it up. Yeah, you, your feet are covered in like these weird leather moccasins that were prescribed to you by a physician <laughs> and that look awful." Yeah, yeah. I mean, the worst thing that I think has happened. Maybe I've told you about this before, but I've had attendants put my boxers on backwards. The horror. Yeah. So I'll go to take a pee, and I won't have a fly to use. Oh, I oh I don't relate to this because I sit on the toilet. I'm sorry, I didn't empathize with you there. Well, no, because I mean, like. I guess if I was really good at pooping, like I said, I wish I was. <laughs> Then it would be easy access for that. Yeah, you just poop through the flap. Yeah, just undo a button, you're good to go. <laughs>、uh, yeah, but now you gotta like flip it over the elastic, and it's a whole. What if you could make like like、uh, an Alexa-based robotic arm, like a space arm, to like administer an enema for you? I don't want an enema. I don't think you heard me. Okay, end of subject. <laughs> <laughs> the whole goal isn't to make an enema easier. <laughs>、um, but yeah, no, I I do think looking Yeah, if there was like an employee photo day, you'd be just ready to go. You're representative of yourself. No, definitely not that much. I think I just have lower standards than you. <laughs> like what you would wear to an employee photo shoot? No, just like looking at you right now, you look ready for work. Versus me, I look like I'm ready to read my book in bed. Well, part of that is because I do actually get called into video meetings. Every day at work without pre-scheduling them, so every single day I have a video meeting、yeah. that I wasn't prepared for. Like they're trying to catch you with your pants off. Yeah, well, they don't know if I have pants on because that's 
the beauty of remote work, but I always have to at least think about what shirt I'm wearing. Imagine if employees like uh, mandated a pants cam. To make sure you're wearing pants. Yeah, like to enforce like the dress code, the remote <laughs> dress code and shit. They're only allowed to turn it on like once a day, but it's just to check to make sure you're wearing pants. I like wearing like a suit and stuff. Like it's fun, but I wouldn't want to have to work in a place where that is what I had to wear every day, especially when it's like 30 degrees out. Yeah. <clears throat> what used to drive me the most crazy about having to wear semi-formal clothes uh, for the government of Canada was, um, first of all, like wearing a tie because it would it would take half my wake up call in the morning for the attendant to tie a tie for me and then yeah the other the other part was tucking in my shirt because the first instance where i went to the bathroom at work i could never actually tuck it in myself all the way around or even like competently yeah so i always i always looked disheveled or like my clothes needed to be ironed and then the other part of it and we like we make jokes about this at work about the 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 MBA types who wear pointy shoes, you know, like the formal shoes that clip and have heels, yeah, yeah. and they look like they belong on Santa's elves. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I I had to wear a pair of those. And when you say had to, like you actually were told this is what you have to wear. Yeah, that was the, that was the dress code for the uh, for the for the SAP testing. Uh, group at PWGST. Weird. And so I had to wear them, and I would trip over them constantly because they they didn't fit my feet properly, even though they were my size. No, they're not. They don't fit anyone's feet. It's like a third of the shoe is just the point. Exactly. Yeah, you feel like you could actually put someone's eye out if you did Pilates or something. Yeah, like I'm pretty sure they were invented so people could sneak things through on an airplane. Right. That's why you have to take your shoes off now. I they look like they come from the costume department at like a Christmas store. Yeah. It's just a joke. I don't know why they ever were popular anyway. Like they come with pointy ears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is this how we segue into dwarfism? Right. I see where you were going the whole time. <laughs> so we watched them what was it called? Like Peter Pine or uh what was it called? Simon Birch. Simon Birch. Did you really actually forget Peter the title? Pine. <laughs> Peter Pan. What? A mix between Peter Pan and Simon Tree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it away. What's the movie about? So the movie is about basically a young man who is vertically challenged. <laughs> uh, I did actually look up the actor's name in Wikipedia, Ian Michael Smith. He's actually not still an actor. He's a software developer. Or engineer. Oh, really? And he was born in 1987, which is the same year that I was born. And, and you're of, also a software developer. I, I, yeah, I'm a web developer. But anyway, it's a movie about a, a vertically challenged individual who is that the correct term? No, it's not. I, it says that in, in Wikipedia, it says he has dwarfism, but I honestly don't know if that's the correct term or if that's offensive or not. I guess it depends who you ask. Yeah. Is it weird that I want to ask Peter Jackson what the correct terminology is? Because of The Hobbit? Yeah. Seeking vertically challenged dwarfists. I feel like he's single-handedly responsible for the exposure of people with dwarfism to popular culture, like en masse. Did they actually use 
people based on their height, though? I thought they just did camera tricks. I think they used a number of people, but then there's also a lot who are CGI'd into the bits. I don't know. I'm not going anywhere with this. So Ian Michael Smith, I think his name is, is in this movie about a young boy who grows up in the early 60s as a young man with dwarfism. And it's basically just about a year in his life with his best friend, Joe, and how they basically, it's, it's a year in the life of a short person. And I remember this film as a child. Like I remember when it came out in the late 90s. So you had seen it before? I had, yeah, as a kid, uh, at the exact same age as Simon. And I remember it being very heavy, like extremely affecting. There's only a number of times that I remember as a child, both my mom and sister crying simultaneously at the resolution of a film. And it was the other movie was What Dreams May Come and like The Cure, I think, which is a cancer drama from the 90s. So yeah, so it for some reason stuck in my head is this like like behemoth like comedy drama ostensibly about a disabled person. And I don't know if I actually made the precocious correlation between my and Simon's experience or whatever, but it, it like I never forgot about this movie. And it's funny watching it with you for the podcast because I sort of realized that it is a film made for children. Yeah. Like Simon's best friend, his mother dies throughout the course of the movie and she's killed by like an errant baseball that is hit by Simon in his like peewee baseball league. Which is like a ridiculous, if if you put that into a movie and then tried to write it for adults, nobody's going to buy that. No. And like, it's also hard to believe that Simon could hit the ball hard enough to kill someone yeah anyway like he basically orphans simon basically orphans his best friend uh you know and his simon's parents are particularly ashamed of his disability so he's even though he lives with them he's effectively ostracized from them he lives in the attic of their home like all of the light and the goodness and his sensibility and good humor come from his friendship with joe and all the members of his community who are somewhat infatuated with him because he's funny and cocky and seems well-adjusted despite his relatively unhealthy or unreliable home life. What's the point I'm trying to make, Tony? Well, the movie is not as good as uh, what you remember, I think, right? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's not quite as good as I remember. Or, Or in actuality, it's sort of written from the perspective of children, so it's effectively kind of like a children's movie, and I was not expecting that to be the case. Yeah, because I thought it was gonna—I thought it was gonna be more like My Left Foot or The Sound of Metal or Oh, really? Yeah, you know these these disabled films that carry the pretension or the presumption that they will win awards by the time they are seen by a wider audience. Yeah, by virtue of tackling such important subject matter. Well, when you wanted to watch this movie, like it really felt like you we're kind of gearing up for something. Yeah. And then when we were watching it, because you had seen it, I, I hadn't seen it. And all I knew about it was that, that Jim Carrey was in it, which isn't even really the case. Yeah. J- Jim Carrey had a weird year in 1998 where he had a number of serious roles almost inexplicably. Like, you know, he did like The Mask and Liar Liar and Dumber Dumber and Dumb and Dumber. 
<laughs> uh, you know, all these like movies that are like seminal entries into the comedic lexicon of our childhood brains. Uh, and then in 1998, he did like the Truman Show. Yeah, you said 1998 the first time. You meant 96, right? No. Okay, sorry. So from 1994 to 1997, Jim Carrey had a slew of like massive movies. Um, and then uh, in 98, he started trying to do... Serious. Yeah. So he did like Man on the Moon and The Truman Show. And then he did this bit role in Simon Birch. And I think... I think it's an understated role for him. He effectively just uh, he plays the adult narrator of event of the events of the movie, like from the perspective of Simon's friend, Joe. So he's the adult Joe. And yeah, he like he shows no sort of none of the trademarks of Jim Carrey's like manic comedic energy. And so I think he's just trying to get people used to the idea that he wants to be an adult for a couple of years. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's sort of disappointing in that sense. And I and I sort of felt your disappointment throughout the whole two hours of this film. Yeah, I was a little checked out for sure. Yeah. I do like that they hired an actual smaller person. Yeah. But... And you want to know something that I liked about this movie is that the... So they did hire a smaller person, a person with dwarfism. <laughs> and... Like they, it's it's not just stunt casting because, like in the nineties, like I don't really think anyone cared about authentic representation in movies, and that it might have been the case among the fringe or like in France or somewhere, you know, with progressive art house cinema. But in nineteen ninety eight, this was not a thing in the states, and so they they hire someone with actual dwarfism. And he's a phenomenal actor. Like, he's yeah. a really decent performer. Well, you already used the word precocious, and that really is the best way to describe him. Yeah. He's got, like, Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone vibes. Yeah, and when you say that, like, th- they are very, very strong Macaulay Culkin vibes in the sense that he uh, seems to be kind of self-aware of his own innate mischief, and he riffs off of it well. And his co-star... The kid who plays Joe was in a number of high profile films around that time in the late 90s. And Simon or Ian acts circles around his co-star. He's really good. He's super funny. And that's that that was really cool to me. Like it, it totally elevated the proceedings. There's a number of scenes where his class like scenes of uh, Simon in Sunday school in class and just the way he interacts with other child actors he seems sort of in his element he seems like simon to be an actor who's been the source of a certain amount of attention like for most of his young child life so he's learned just to entertain people because of that or as a product of that i wanted to ask you about that because in the movie it basically starts with the kids in his class kind of like throwing them around, lifting them up and down, Mm -hmm. kind of just like playing with them because of the fact that he's small and they can kind of throw him around. And it's a novel thing for the kids. Mm -hmm. Did you have that in your school where your classmates were intrigued to a point where you were almost like fodder for their curiosity? So like, I remember I used to... um, 
not really be able to hold my head up fully, but I would be able to hold it up if it was like perfectly balanced. Like if it was right in the center, then I could just balance it there and I had enough muscle to hold it there unless I got like really hit with like a big bump or something. Hold on. So you holding up your head was the physical feat of an able-bodied person balancing a ball on the top of their head? Exactly. It's like, like I always thought I could be in the globe trotters because I had the same skill that they had when they spin a basketball on their finger. <laughs> <laughs> and But if like a light breeze took it over yeah. and my head fell to the side, uh-huh. it would just kind of flop onto my shoulder. But I had this way of getting it back where I would like rock my head back and forth on my shoulder and then eventually get enough momentum where I could swing it to the front and flip it back to that center position and then hold it there again. And so people loved this weird trick that I could do. So they'd come by, saying it out loud, it's probably terrible, but I kind of got a kick out of it. They'd come by and push my head over (laughs) and then like watch me flip my head back up. Would they ask for permission first or would they Absolutely not. Oh uh, well, there was like a couple people that would do it. They'd be like, can you show me that thing where you flip your head back up? And I'm like, oh, cool. I'm getting attention. So I'd be like, absolutely. Watch this. Just like snap my head to the side and then rock it back into position. <laughs> and when we were watching the movie and the scene was happening where everyone's kind of throwing Simon around, sort of elated by the novelty of his smallness it brought that to my mind so i wanted to know if you had anything like that i don't know if a lot of people like objectified me as a kid for the for the sake of their own entertainment i do remember when we had winter electives in primary school i used to i would bring to i I would always take like the skating option what were the other options there was like skating swimming like soccer and like running, I don't know. I, I, I don't care about sports, so I usually put all those things out of mind. Okay. Yeah, so I would take the skating option because it meant that I could bring this funny, like forward-sitting uh, sled, and I would just sit in it, and then the kids would pull me around. Like, I think by bungee cord. They would like hook a bungee cord into the sled and then just like skate around in circles with me in this fucking thing. And it felt like... Uh, like Jet Set Moto, like I don't know if you were, were a few years apart, so you might not remember that video game. No. But it felt like I was in a in a in a video game, and I wasn't afraid of any injuries because if I flew off the sled, it was usually into a snowbank. Right. So it was actually like so much fun to be pulled around in this sled. And one thing that I used to love is like for the winter electives, I could often go swimming. And a lot of my classmates like never really seen me like upright or without any kind of mobility device. So when I get in in water, I'm standing and it's like this weird thing where I'm now like playing like like water volley. Like, you know how they have like balls in the pool and you can like shoot hoops and stuff. I could do that in a pool. So it was like a level playing field. And I do remember the distinct feeling of people seeing me slightly differently in that context. I, I that's I used to be obsessed with swimming. I had an upground pool in my backyard up until like grade five, and every summer I would 
I would be I would be in the water for most of the day. It's kind of wild how as kids we all just didn't care at all. Like I used to go, I used to swim a lot, and I would go there with like my parents, and I'd wear like ankle weights and pretend I was walking along the bottom of the pool. Yeah, and and I, I would also, you know, like you, I did. I had like a a kick sled where I was on it, and someone would stand on the back. It's like a dog sled, and yeah. I love that thing. And then as I got older, I remember getting insecure about all those things because I realized how different I was doing it from all of my peers. And I, I went through a long phase where I just stopped doing stuff because I thought I was lame the way I was doing it, which, I mean, now I've kind of grown out of that, so I don't mind as much doing things differently. I think it's also just so much I'm so much more used to it, but it's it's bizarre how as a kid it's just like like you can be in those moments getting pulled around on a sled and not a care in the world you're the happiest kid yeah but then thinking about doing that now you're just like oh yeah but that's so ridiculous you know yeah i definitely relate to not wanting people to make exceptions just to accommodate me in certain situations yeah but i think like as a kid like you kind of had this inherent idea that anything even remotely participatory was equalizing. Yeah. So you just sort of hopped on to any chance you got to do to do different things with other kids. And I always had amazing friends as a kid, like friends I still have to this day since like 1994. There's a guy that lives down the street from me that I'm really close to and I talk to even now during COVID at least once a week and we'd all we did all kinds of things together as kids and uh i i mean obviously we've talked about this before but i i think that it goes a long way to um nullifying the differences between like disability and able-bodiedness well it's really important when you don't feel like your disability matters in the moment like when even though you can't do something it doesn't matter because your friends don't care that you can't do it. Or they're, or in some contexts, they're even having more fun because it's that much more ridiculous to bring Jamie along. Yeah. And so every occasion becomes a fucking story worth, worth retelling. Yeah, because there's always something sort of because of your disability mm-hmm. that either goes wrong or you have to do it a different way. And so, it, yeah, it becomes... Uh, a more interesting moment, probably. I remember uh, uh, in 2011, a friend of mine worked at Trowbridge, uh, which was like I get like a campground, like uh, out a uh, little ways outside of Thunder Bay. And I don't know what he did for his job. I think he just sort of manned the desk at like the main cabin and like administ like he was a clerk essentially. But he had uh, like a couple very long summers where he wasn't really doing much. So he would always like on my days off, like urge me to come down and then he would want to put me in his like in his golf cart that he would use to like traverse the traverse the campus or whatever. He'd be like, please, please get in this fucking golf cart with me and just drive this circuit. I because it's so funny, like watching me like flip out and be scared of every little bump. 
and like curve and everything. And like I I would be genuinely afraid and like on the verge of pissing myself, like in actuality, like not hyperbole. Yeah. I'd be very close to taking a leak. And it was still so much fun. It's, it's like that sensation of like when you ride an amusement park ride and for a split second. Yeah, it's like a roller coaster. Yeah. For a split second, you think you're going to die or your body thinks you're going to die. And then you don't. And your response is just like the most resounding belly laughter you've ever had. Just like pure adrenaline too. Yeah. Yeah. So much fun. All that is to say that in Simon Birch, there's like a sense of of that dynamic that we're talking about. Yeah. That the kids that interact with Simon are not afraid of him. They have fun with him. So there is this, despite the movie being like kind of a weepy, unnecessarily tragic at the end, and like campy, I suppose the word is, there there are several bits of authenticity that sort of make it worth re-examining. But I'm not sure if that's the case if you're not a disabled person who grew up with that movie. Because I really, I don't know if I would recommend it to anyone, really. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I had a great time watching it. (laughs) (laughs) If I wasn't watching it for the purpose of talking about it here with you, yeah, I don't think I would have stuck through. No, yeah, I would have given up within the first hour. Like that, there's, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I would have even made it that far. I don't think I would have saw the mom got get hit by the baseball. Really? No. I think when that happened, I was like doing something else on my other screen. <laughs> yeah, but but you're right. The the friendship he has with Joe is really cool mm-hmm. and kind of groundbreaking in the sense that um, even though it is a lot about his disability, but it's only because it has to be because of the little things that happen are directly related to it. But it's also not really about his disability in that uh, it could have been the same movie anyway without that person. Like Simon's height doesn't really factor into the film's plot all that much? No. Well, so the basic premise, other than it being a day in the life of Simon, is that uh, his friend Joe is a bastard that's what he calls himself he doesn't know who his father is yeah um and his mother refuses to tell him because she doesn't think it's an important detail and basically simon accidentally kills joe's mother with this home run out of the baseball diamond and that is sort of in instead of that being like a, a moment of grief or introspection or whatever instead of the movie really examining what that loss is for Joe and for Simon because Joe's mother is such a source of like maternal care and love for both of the boys. It's instead almost like a a fucking plot device because the death of the mother is more seen as an obstacle to Joe finding out who his father is, weirdly enough. Yeah, which doesn't make much sense. No, this movie was like adapted from like a John Steinbeck book. Oh, it was? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems like anemic in its like sort of parsing of these particular uh, plot elements. Because like after the mom dies, it's like one or two scenes later, you know, Simon shows his remorse and Joe forgives him. And it's one or two scenes later. And then Joe's like, all right, now back to finding out who the fuck my dad is. And it doesn't really 
quite work. But anyway, Simon keeps repeating throughout the film that he's like, he thinks that he uh, has been brought into the world for some special purpose. Oh, yeah. That God has given him the gift of of shortness uh, as part of his path to something greater than himself and the people around him. By the way, the movie is quite religious, which is a little bit odd. Weirdly religious. Yeah, like usually religious Hollywood movies have this like counterbalance of secularism, but this movie doesn't. So it almost feels like a like a like a Christian film. Yeah. But it seems more to be for the sake of explaining Simon's source of hope and will to live, which is a little patronizing i think yeah that's true so all of the adults in the movie yeah it's like oh this kid needs to believe in god otherwise he would be unhappy because he's short right well was there ever a point where you derived uh any of your self-confidence from your mastery of your faith well i would never say that i had mastery i was always (laughs) kind of wishing i couldn't be I have so many church stories that make me like make me cringe thinking about it. But also I remember in the moment being like, I never want to come back to church. Like this is humiliating. Like I remember every week we had to do communion and like it's you know, pretty straightforward. You dunk a piece of the Lord into his blood and eat it. So they feed you like, you know, they feed you like these crackers that I actually found pretty delicious. They were. I always wanted another one. Yeah. But I hated <laughs> the wine. I never, so, I couldn't drink the wine because I only ever got communion in mass, uh, like at school. Oh, so you were allowed, you were old enough. Yeah. And I was like allergic to the incense at Corpus Christi where my grandfather was deacon. So my family stopped going to church on Sunday. I'm pretty sure, like, I don't know if they actually gave us alcoholic wine but all the kids got to have it that's bizarre yeah so you had to go up to the front of the church i had to drive up to the railing which has like a step up to it that you're supposed to kneel on and then you put your hands over for the anointed lord to give you the blood of christ and the body of his bum or whatever (laughs) and then you take a chunk of the lord and you eat them It'd be funny if your priest like knocked your head off your headrest, <laughs> just like the schoolyard kids. Just watching me put it back, huh? <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't able to put my hand out and make a cup with my hand. So already I'm at a disadvantage. So he'd have to, and I'm always, I was always the last. We always sat at the back of the church. So you basically go up in order of pews. So we were always the last ones. So I'd park up, I'd try to sit like sideways up to the railing so that I could kind of reach the wafer. And then I'd hope that they put it out far enough for me to reach it. Otherwise, he would reach in and grab it for me, give me the wafer, and I'd have to like negotiate my hand to actually take it out of his hand. No. The priest made you take the body of Christ from him with your hand? Yeah. I, I had to like get it out and then I'd hold it. And then he'd come by with the wine and 
I could never reach the wine with my mouth. So my move was to dip the wafer because that's acceptable to the Lord. And so I would dip the wafer in the, the blood. Did you ever confront him about this? Why did he make you do this? I never confronted anyone at the church other than every Sunday I'd be like, can I stay home? That was the only confrontation I had about church. Is it like a, a sin for the priest to feed you the body of Christ? I don't understand. I think they were trying to make, like, meet me where I was at. And so they thought it would be weird to put it in my mouth because I still could kind of reach out with my hand. So anyway, I would dunk it. But what happened so often is I would drop the wafer in the wine and then either I would or he would start having to fish out the wafer out of the wine cup. This happened multiple times and they didn't think to have a better process for you. No, they were just like, oh, this is how he has to live. Eventually I'd get it in this like soaked wafer, which ruined it. I just wanted it dry. But then I would always get like an extra blessing because he was like, you know, a dunked wafer isn't enough to cure this one. So he'd like put his hand on me and like give me like a... He would put his hand in your mouth, but he'll put his... Uh, ah! <laughs> like, oh, I hope God make this guy better or whatever. Um, but then I got so annoyed that I eventually stopped wanting to go because it's humiliating. I'm the last one up. Everyone's done. I'm basically the last one every single Sunday. And they're just waiting for me, watching me struggle to like dunk it or whatever and eat God's body. And then so I stopped going to the front and I would stay at the back thinking like, okay, I'm exempting myself from communion this week. Because other people didn't always go up. You were allowed to not go up. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll just stay at the back. But then, because I stayed at the back, the priest would go, oh, I guess it's too hard for him to come up. I'll go to him. So then everyone is done communion, and he gets up and walks to the back of the church where I'm sitting to give me my own personal communion, which I understand is like a really nice gesture, but it was humiliating because now everyone is looking like, for the newcomers that didn't go to the church every week, they were like, oh, where is he going? Are we supposed to go with him? No, we're just going to like bless the cripple. So I'd have to do my own little communion. It was awful. Is there some sort of terrible irony in the idea that men of God are terrible attendants? Like, I mean, how 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 frequent is it that um, men of the church have poor social skills and can't empathize? It's probably a fairly common thing. It's got to be a weird thing to go to school for. Because everyone is there for that, right? So you're just sitting like in class, like comparing like favorite scriptures. Did you ever get in a precocious battle of Bible quotes with your pastor? <laughs> no. The only thing I really enjoyed about church, sometimes Sunday school was fun because it felt like almost like camp. You're just like chilling with your friends downstairs. And then I liked the pageants that we'd put on because I really <laughs> did I really did enjoy acting. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's my time to shine. Did you have to play baby Jesus? I honestly I couldn't tell you what I did. But I remember enjoying it a lot. 
the other thing though that was an, like humiliating a lot of the time i wasn't in my chair for it in your chair for what communion for any of church oh so what they put you in a communion sling they had me in like a special church funded wheelbarrow wheelchair that was made for stairs be funny if they like draped you over a cross <laughs> and then just like just hung me up yeah yeah <laughs> it's like a crucifix by invocare <laughs> tilt recline nails <laughs> at least your head wouldn't fall down <laughs> oh my god i'm sorry how was your church experience <laughs> i never enjoyed church yeah the only thing i enjoyed was singing hymns in the gym gym hymns are fun yeah not to be confused with Slim Jims. Right. But if you're singing a Jim Ham while eating a Slim Jim, you start hemming on. <laughs> I think the coffee just kicked in. I apologize for the crucifix joke. So actually, the reason we're talking about religion is because there's actually a scene in Simon Birch where Simon, by virtue of his size, is asked to play baby Jesus as part of the nativity scene for the for the church's... Uh, like annual Christmas pageant and hilarity ensues. Not actually. Um, one thing I wanted to address, like, did you notice that this movie kind of has like a women problem? Yeah. He was surprisingly creepy child. Yeah. So like during this nativity scene, like uh, first of all, Simon is not happy about being cast as baby Jesus. Fair enough. He shouldn't be, of course. And everyone just sort of assumes that it's like a natural fit for him and he should obviously do it. <clears throat> During the scene, he uh, reaches out to grab the breast of the woman who plays Mother Mary. I don't know if we're going to say a woman. It's a child. It is a child. Well, she's a, a fellow 12-year-old, so it's not creepy in that sense. Right. Um, but he does it like effectively assault her. And then there are basically no repercussions. He like loses his baseball cards for a week. But one thing that I noticed is that there's only like two portraits of women throughout this movie. There's either uh, Joe's grandmother and his housemaid, who are both women in their mid to late 70s. And they are like immobile and just sort of seem to be like like matriarchs in a reading room. Like they never get up from their chairs and they're only ever telling Joe to stop running around or to behave himself. And then there's like... There's like Ashley Judd, who is this like sex symbol. She's just basically like uh, uh, womanhood incarnate and she's impossibly beautiful. And all the shots of her are literally in slow motion. And there's like God rays behind her. She's just like the platonic ideal of all femininity or whatever. And as played by Ashley Judd, like she, she kind of is that like she's very she's a beautiful woman. And so, but there are no like female characters with agency. Yeah, it, it, he was like surprisingly misogynistic for a child. Yeah. And a lot of his humor was based on that. Yeah. I, I can't specifically quote one line about that, but there was also, it is the 60s and they, they, they do live in like an idyllic small town and there are no people of color in the film except for joe's housemaid who is in a wheelchair because she lost her leg to diabetes i think yeah and so 
Joe's grandmother, uh, the narrator says that she takes compassion for the housemaid and decides that she doesn't have to work anymore and should just live out the rest of her days like in the house with them as a member of the family. So I think it's trying to indicate that like, you know, despite it being the early sixties, like Joe's family is progressive, but then it also like, it also concludes that anecdote by saying that, you know, they hired two additional housemaids who I think were people of color to replace his nanny or something. I don't know. There's, there's just some weird politics at play and the movie doesn't really dive into them. So I don't really know why it's mentioned other than it being like period appropriate dressing for the film, I guess like it's given equal weight as like the Motown music that is meant to set the period more so than comment on anything. Well, I mean, the movie came out in 98. Exactly. So it has no, it it lacks self-awareness in that regard. And I suppose that that is meant to be expected. Yeah. Which also sort of makes the portrait of Simon and disability that much more remarkable because, and then I think it, as we said before, it ends up feeling more authentic because of the, the strength of the lead performance more than anything else. Yeah. I, I wonder if they wrote the part for him or if they wrote the part and then found him because he really does seem like, it would be a weird movie having anyone else play that role. He, I don't know. I, I skimmed the Wikipedia article, so I probably shouldn't be citing this in the episode. But the movie was basically made for Ian. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what I figured just based on the movie. It definitely wasn't made for me. I'll say that. Who do you think it was like? Who should watch this movie? Like, do you think if you have a disabled kid? Now you would show them this movie? Uh, no. But there isn't a lot to show them. I mean, maybe as a precursor to my left foot, like if you have like a like an eleven year old wheelie. Yeah. But then in that case, I would and it, like you know you couldn't show them. What else could you show them? I mean, you could still show them adult movies. Like there are still movies that hold up. Like The Upside is a movie that I think a kid could get something out of. That's a good point. Which we haven't actually covered yet, but... But yeah, that's a very good point. There there are no children's films yeah. for disabled kids. So in that sense, I think it's cool and maybe a little important. Did I say this earlier? The movie uh, kind of strikes a similar tone as Jumanji. Is that weird? Like the original one? Yeah, the Robin Williams, like, 1995 special effects ROM. Yeah, I don't really... I'm trying to compare them right now. I mean, to me, Jumanji's in a league of its own. Well, of course, they're not... They, they, they're not... They don't elicit all the same feelings, but I feel like like the the proportions of levity and tragedy are similar, and they both take place... They both sort of allude to the 50s and 60s a lot. I think this movie's way more sad than Jumanji. I think Jumanji's arguably a little bit sadder because the film works a bit more. I don't even remember what is sad about Jumanji. Well, Robin Williams is effectively orphaned because he spends his early adult life in a jungle. (laughs) I honestly don't really remember it. I remember getting scared by the monkeys. Jumanji's a good movie, man. We should watch it together as a palate cleanser from this movie. Yeah, that's a fun movie to throw back on. 
Um, but this movie, I don't know. I think maybe it's cool because of the fact that there aren't many kid-centric disabled movies. Mm-hmm. Even then, like it's not it's not a movie I would show to my kid and be like, you should be like this guy. Especially if you had a daughter. Yeah. You, like you couldn't really show her this movie. Yeah, it's it's really weird towards women. Right out of the gate, the kid's like making mommy boob jokes and it's it's just kind of strange. I really don't know what the audience was. Maybe that's their way of making a joke for the parents. But it's not like, it's not clever. It's just pervy. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. I, I wasn't impressed. I got bored. I don't think it's like a bad movie, but it just, it didn't do anything for me. Yeah. It made me wish that Ian Michael Smith, I'm sure I have his name totally wrong. But it made me wish that the lead actor was given like a Judd Apatow vehicle in the mid 2000s. Yeah. He, he's funny and he should have had more of a platform and he should have been more famous as a product of this movie. Maybe he chose not to. Maybe he didn't want to. Yeah. Um, Judd Apatow solves everything. He, I can't wait till Judd Apatow does a wheelie movie. If I was going to do write a movie, I would so much want to work with Judd Apatow. Absolutely. He would be the perfect person to add humanity to disability. I agree. Should we move to move on from that? Are, are we done talking about this movie? I think we are. Yep. I'm kind of bored of it, to be honest. We, we don't need to talk about the conclusion. There's a whole, there's a whole bit at the end of the movie where Simon's purpose ends up being to rescue a bunch of school children from a. It's so stupid. A field trip school bus that goes off the rails and dives into a lake and he proceeds to usher the kids out in an orderly fashion because he knows how to hold his breath yeah because he knows how to swim and hold his breath and to its credit the movie does sort of set up all of the elements that lead to the rescue mission being a success but it ends up being so fundamentally cheesy and it's just weird that they kill off simon at the end of the movie yeah for no reason for no reason yeah he he develops that like dry cough that signifies in all movies that someone's going to die soon. Maybe he was just way ahead of his time and he got COVID. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. So in that sense, maybe it was the best movie ever. It was, it was decades ahead of its time. It was prescient. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. It was kind of a lame movie. I'm kind of getting as bored talking about it right now <laughs> as I did while we were watching it. You're like playing chess in your mind in preparation for tomorrow's poop? Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to figure out if I can get to move nine. Damn. Uh, all right. Let's do, let's do this then. Wheel breakers. Do you have one? Give me a minute. You go first. Okay. I have... A listener submitted one. Okay. So this is submitted by Kyle Hannah's girlfriend, Megan. Awesome. It's, it's hilarious for you. Okay. This is actually the perfect movie to do it because the secondary character in the movie, his name is Joe. So for those of uh, the listeners who don't know, can you just quickly do an impression of your dad? Just say anything. Uh, what do you want me to say there, Mr. Tony? I I need some context. So I'm I'm coming to you and I'm like, you know what, Dad? 
I think I'm having a harder time pooping than I used to. And I don't really know what to do about it. I know that eventually it's going to be hard for me. But I just, I'm not ready to be there yet. I think I'm still okay. But I feel like I'm just holding on by a little bit. And I don't know how to cope emotionally. Do you have any advice for me? Well, Mr. Tony, I would recommend you up your Metamucil in the morning. Uh, increase your weekly probiotics and uh, make sure you get a lot of fiber and uh, have a, a regular conference with your family physician to make sure that you're uh, keeping good gut health. And in the event that you are not, your mother and I will determine how to administer an enema. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> and for those of us who don't know, why is the name Joe significant to that impression? I don't know, Mr. Joe. The thing is, when I was a kid, my, or am I Jerry or Jamie right now? You're Jerry. You see there, Mr. Tony, my dad has a tendency to speak in rhyming couplets. You're still talking as Jamie, though. Oh, shit. So uh, when Mr. Joe was little, I used to say things like, okay, Jose, it's time to go today. And so <laughs> the name Jose stuck for... Uh, situations outside of that particular rhyming instance. And the the other thing was, all right, Mr. Joe, it's time to go. And so he would just, I don't know, these fucking weird nicknames that always stick. That's so good. Yeah. So every time he comes down into the garage, he'll be like, well, Joe, did you have a conference with your boss today? Did he make sure you let him know you're getting all your work done? <laughs> mm-hmm. Does he still call you Jose? Or Jose? He calls me Jose uh, sometimes, but it's always Joe. That's so good. And my friend's dad is named Joe. So sometimes he'd come pick me up and he'd be like, I'm ready to go, Joe. And I'd be like, hey, kid, don't call me Joe around Joe because it's confusing. <laughs> he'd be like, I don't know what you mean. So it's like he doesn't even know he does it. My dad's kind of like aloof, but like very focused in other ways. It's weird. I don't think he's aloof. I just think he doesn't care what you think. <laughs> Probably, yeah. He's got like this like old man sort of irreverence. Yeah. When I've heard him talk to you, you call him out and he just keeps talking. Like, yeah, like I you know. your opinion doesn't matter to him. Yeah, 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 he's not listening. He doesn't care. Like it matters, but like your criticisms mean nothing. Like he's just like, okay, I'm still going to say what I'm going to say though. Yeah. I kind of respect that about him. Yeah, he is, for better or worse, always himself. Yeah. And like you can't take that away from him. No, that's a great quality. When you when you can just be yourself and not really care about it, I think I think that's when you that's kind of what everyone strives for, I think. That's what I strive for. But he's also like part of that generation. Like he was born in like nineteen forty three. Yeah. And so he has like this like this sense of in, intestinal fortitude and and of like he has this internal idea of the ideal citizen. Right. And so he's always sort of putting that forward. I don't know how to explain that, but there's there's a, a an innate pride in him that no matter how silly he's being in any one moment, there's always a part of him that is a character from Mad Men. And does he know that? No. And the fact that he doesn't know that makes him an even more believable Mad Men character. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's like, it's like, it's like, I don't have time for all this neurotic self-awareness. I have to build a deck right now. Like, <laughs> go away. I like that. Just get your head down and get it done. 
Yeah. I actually like it too. During COVID, uh, we've sort of started this routine where he works on his uh, miniatures for his railroad. So he's so he's in in the back, like working away at these like very very detail oriented dioramas, essentially. And I'm astounded at the level of detail that he's able to capture. I have like immense respect for it. Yeah. But we like him and I come to odds a lot because where he is able to allot his focus is completely different from where I can. Right. So I'm always like astounded that like he can't send an email attachment, but he can like build these elaborate and wonderful models or he can, he's got this like innate craftsmanship in all his woodworking and it all just sort of seems to come out of him fully formed. But the source of respect that I have for him is also a source of adversity. Yeah. Well, I think that's anyone that like, you know, you, you know him so well that you know every little like mannerism and idiosyncrasy. That's so true. When I see him do it, it's endearing because it's like the first time I've seen him do it. And you're just like, yeah, yeah, I've seen him do that before. Yeah, it's like it's like uh, the dynamic that can happen with anyone when they cease to surprise you. Yeah. Okay, so all that said, this is the idea. <laughs> I get to make you able-bodied. Mm-hmm. And everything will be the way you want it. But I have to be my dad? No. Okay. But you have to talk to everyone in that voice. And you have to call everyone Joe. Kyle and his girlfriend was aware of my dad's impression? You've done it a lot. Really? On the podcast. Oh, no. That means I do it without realizing. We've talked about it a few times. I think I can do it. Yeah, I, that's fine. To be honest, my dad's voice is slightly more confident than mine. So I think I think it might actually benefit me to impersonate him more often. Uh, if you did that, though, like, because when I hear you do that, I know you're putting on a voice. That's true. So people would think I was joking all the time? People would think that you're being insincere, I think. Maybe. Well, maybe not insincere, but people would be like, what's up with this guy? What would I call you? What would be your nickname if I were my dad? Joe. Just Joe. Everyone's Joe. Everyone is Joe. Actually, my mom is Mo and my sister is Sarah Mara. So I think he would actually come up with a crafty nickname for you. Tony Baloney. (laughs) Mr. Tony Baloney, how you doing? (laughs) No, everyone you have to call Joe because that makes it even more insufferable. Because everyone is Joe, so it's not even... You're not giving people clever nicknames. You're just calling everyone Joe. That would be awful for people close to me. And they would get sick of it, and you can't stop. But I get to be able-bodied, and I could probably make it work. I think I would do it. For the record, though, I just want to make it clear. If you took this deal, you don't get to, like, charm your way through the impression. That's just how you talk. Yeah, I've been working on this impression for my whole adult life. Oh, I know. So I could figure it out. I, I would navigate it, I think. Okay, yeah. I think you'd be fine at it. I think as your friend, it would be very annoying to talk to you. Really? Like, I don't know if we'd be able to continue the podcast. If that's how you talked forever, for everything, all the time. What if it was, would it be worse if it, if it was Tony Soprano all the time? 
Yeah, I think it would be annoying if you were being anyone but yourself all the time. I'd maybe let it slide because I know that you had to do this to become able-bodied. <laughs> but the whole time, I'd be like, your, body, your, your life wasn't that bad, man. You could have just <laughs> kept the disability out of your own voice. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think the whole time, I'd be like, come on, guys. Was your life that hard? You have to be this guy. I'd have to start over, basically. No one's heard me do the impression. I'd, I'd have to have a new circle so that it wouldn't be grating. They would just think it was me. Yeah, that's the move. Yep. And then, so the question becomes, would I be willing to give up my existing social structure in order to live able-bodied? And the answer to that question is probably no. Probably. Probably. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. Like, being able-bodied would fucking rock. I don't, I mean, it's its own thing. I mean, I, I yeah, in a lot of ways for sure, but the more we do this game, the more I'm like, maybe it's not that bad. Being disabled? Because we come up with, like, pretty simple scenarios where I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Usually it's like social faux pas or, or you have to suffer a slight embarrassment on a regular basis in order to be able-bodied. Yeah, and I'd rather have people... I'd rather know why people are staring at me at the park than people go, like, like talking about me, like, have you heard about this guy? Is that his real voice? Does he actually talk like that? Why does he tell everyone Joe? Are you doing it? Final answer. Mm, I think I would do it. Yeah, I thought you might. Because I'd figure out some way to make make my dad's mannerisms more tolerable. And I think you like doing the impression. I like impressions in general because you get to pretend to be something else. Yeah, but you're also pretty good at it. You practice it a lot. And it's pretty easy to do anything in that voice. Because I think also because you know your dad so well, you kind of know how he's going to say almost anything. But it's just your dad, so you can just, you can kind of get away with saying anything. Yeah. All right, so you're going to say no wheel. No wheel. All right, you got one? Yeah. So you get to be completely able-bodied. Okay. But you can never say the phrase, I love you. Whoa. That's a wild one because for a long time, I had a weird... This is going to get depressing. <laughs> I, had a, I had a weird relationship with that phrase because I used to say it to my foster parents and then my biological mom was like, you can say that. I'm your mom. They're just your foster parents. Tony, and then I was like, yeah. This stuff with the enemas and then your all mom... Right, all, with, right, all right, all right, no, okay. no, 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 no. I'm not telling you to stop talking. It's just like, if I ever say anything bad about your mom, is it okay? Which one? Your biological mom. Yeah. Seems like she's a bitch. Yeah, I mean, I think she just, she was young. She had me for the wrong reasons. And then when I was disabled, she was like, well, now I got to be a mom. That's not really what I signed up for. Sorry, are you empathizing with your mom wanting to avoid the responsibility of you? Yeah, because... Tony, I have a lot of empathy. <laughs> but you wouldn't if she would stop giving you enemas. <laughs> okay, let's go back to the scenario because this is going to turn into therapy real quick. <laughs> um, it's a tricky one because I love you is such an intense phrase. I don't throw it around. I'll say the word love 
I'll throw that word around. Yeah. But the actual phrase, I love you, I kind of reserve that phrase. Yeah. And if I say it to someone, I've thought about whether or not I love that person. Yeah. I don't just say it. It also it also takes on a completely new meaning once you actually do love someone for the first time. Yeah. The weird thing is, though, the first time I say it to someone, then the floodgates are open. I'll say it all the time. Oh, yeah. It's a go-to, eh? Yeah. Like, I'll be like, oh, I love them. Okay, I love you. Yeah, it's pretty fun to say after that. Yeah, because then you're like, oh, damn, I'm in love. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so you'd have to come up with some sort of, like, replacement word as an able-bodied person. Yeah, and I don't know. I've done it before where, like, as I'm starting to get close to people, I'll use, like, alternatives because I'm not ready to say I love you yet. Ooh, synonyms? I'll use alternative phrases or just say it in, like, a different language. I see you, like, like metaphorically equating them to, like, your favorite, like, Indian sauce, Indian chicken sauce. Yeah, I'll be like, oh, you're tandoori to me, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken korma. They know what that means. <laughs> you're the ninth move in my morning poo. You're reclining in a world of tilt. <laughs> That's a wheelchair reference. That is. Can I explain to people that I can't say it? Or do they just think I'm never going to say it to them? Like, what if so- what if I was with someone and they're like, I love you. And I'd be like, butter chicken. <laughs> yeah, that's the burden. You can't give them the context. Right. So then they'd be like, what? This guy's a dick. You have to say it with your eyes or 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 through your cooking. I know I've, I see people communicate with their eyes. Yeah. And I know I have expressive an expressive face. Yeah. But whenever I try to communicate with my eyes, I feel creepy. Well. And so I don't think I can rely on that. Well, like eye communication uh, is like, okay, so with a perfect stranger, you can flirt with your eyes. Like, you you know. Yeah, I think some people can, but I don't think I can. <laughs> Why? I just, I I think it's like expectation versus reality. When I'm giving someone a face and I'll be like, oh, this is going to get them to know what I'm saying. <laughs> then they'll look at me and be like, what's wrong? I'll be like, oh, yeah, never mind. Nothing. No, see, I know that I've really truly made you laugh when your eyebrows hit your hairline. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the description. Like my hair moves out of the way, <laughs> yeah. like a Lego piece. Yeah, well, it's like because you can't really like keel over with laughter. Yeah, no, I know. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I know that I've like struck the chord. The absence of laughter is usually a good thing. Yeah, because yeah. it means I'm like struggling to breathe. Yeah. If I'm laughing, it's more like a giggle. <laughs> I'm just like acknowledging a good joke. But if I'm like if I'm actually dying, either you hear like a goose being squeezed to death yeah, or nothing. I should have said, well, yeah, I don't know. What I was about to say was morbid. <clears throat> I'm sure there are ways that you betray that you love someone with your eyes. And we'd have to like confirm it with uh, secondary sources probably. But we can't do that right now. So you have to, you have to rectify your love life and then we'll figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Uh so I think I could get away with it, but I also think that because I can't explain it to them, yeah. It would just be weird. 
somebody would say, I love you. And I would just be like, <laughs> and I start looking at them. Yeah. And just like my eyes do stuff. And they're like, you're okay. Just Morse code with your eyebrows or some shit. Yeah. I don't know. That's a tough one. Because it isn't a phrase I throw around. But when I do, it holds water. And I, I wouldn't want to lose that ability. And yeah, I, I don't think so. Because I, I, like, I even, I say that to, like, my guy friends. Like, I'll be like, I love you, bro, or whatever. Or whatever. It's funny. You always got to add the or whatever. Yeah, that's what I say. I love you, bro, or whatever. <laughs> I don't say I love you. I just say I love you, bro, or whatever. Yeah. I said or whatever because as I said that, I was like, I never say I love you, bro. <laughs> I never add a bro to the end of it. So then I was, like, trying to backpedal by making it even more pedantic i was like i love you bro or whatever i don't care whatever i'm trying to think if i've ever told a guy friend that i love them without alcohol and it it may have only happened once if i really think about it yeah that's that's funny yeah i could i could find other ways to say it to guy friends Mm -hmm. because you know it's it's pretty replaceable there are other words you can use for that. And they would probably prefer it that way, really. <laughs> That's why I say bro or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, I don't think so. Because when I do say it, it, it almost feels like I feel so excited and privileged in a way to be able to have someone who I can say that to mm-hmm. and mean it. Mm-hmm. That if I don't have that phrase... It would be hard. Right. But then the comedy in me wants to be like, yeah, fuck it. I just say, whatever, butter chicken. Right. Non bread. <laughs> non bread. It's just various foods yeah. that she knows you love. Sesame seeds. It's, it's really, that would be so funny if like you said sesame seeds and then she immediately had that like warm, comforting feeling. <laughs> <laughs> or like I said sesame seeds to her. Yeah. And she was like, you said spaghetti to the other girl. <laughs> Do you like sesame seeds more than spaghetti? And I'd have to like start justifying how much I like sesame seeds compared to spaghetti. Maslow's hierarchy of food love. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'll do it just so that I can I can really get in tune with myself to figure out how much I love various foods. Cool. Okay. Yeah, that's a good answer. I'm satisfied with that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Is that, are we done? Yeah, we're done. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we need like a sign off. I guess so. A lot of people just say bye. Just end it like a phone call. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> no, you hang out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you, everyone.